and welcome to the Trauma Mental Health Report podcast series. We aim to share stories and knowledge on topics related to trauma and mental health with the community. My name is Eleni Neofitu, and I'd like to welcome our guest for today's episode, Dr. Gabor Mate. Today we will be discussing his new book, The Myth of Normal, and The Human Experience. Let's get into today's conversation. Hello. Hi. Hi, Eleni. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for showing up. This is amazing. Of course. Um, So I'd like to start off by uh, thanking you for coming on to the Trauma Mental Health Report. Yeah. I know you're in the middle of writing, or maybe in the later stages of writing your new book, The Myth normal illness and health in an insane culture yeah um can we speak a little bit about that book you want me to start speaking about the book sure sure so um the assumption is that people who are mentally ill or physically ill are somehow abnormal there's some abnormality going on with them but i'm taking a totally different view which is that you have to look at the context and the environment. So in a, in a garden, when plants weren't going well, you, you would look at what's wrong with the soil or do, are they getting enough sunlight, enough irrigation? You look at the conditions first. And what I'm saying about our culture is that the conditions for human development and human thriving are, are often missing. And when people get ill physically or mentally, so-called mental illness, what's really going on is that they're responding to abnormal conditions. So that the idea that what's going on in society is normal and that the people who get ill are abnormal is a myth. The reality is that people are responding normally to an abnormal society. And when I mean abnormal, I mean a culture that doesn't meet fundamental human needs. Right. And the source of illness is trying to adjust to abnormal circumstances. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing it more like a systemic issue. It's systemic. You have to look at the whole whole context. And that's because rather than the belief that we're discrete separate individuals, we're very much influenced by each other. And not only are we influenced by each other intellectually, uh, but also emotionally and physiologically. So that the physiology of the human being reflects their relationships with the society and the context in which they exist. So, you know, I mean, obviously, just even on this phone call, if I were to yell at you all of a sudden, your physiology would change. It would change. Your heart rate would go up, your blood pressure would go up, everything else. Well, this My heart rate and blood pressure are already up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so... So this kind of interaction goes on all the time. Mm-hmm. And especially in childhood, when children's physiology is very much programmed by the parents' uh, mental states and physiology. So when the, the more parents are stressed, the more children are stressed. And that stress actually affects their brain development. So then if you look at all these kids that are being diagnosed with all these mental health conditions these days, what's going on? What's going on is that society is increasingly stressed and that has affected the brains of our kids. Mm-hmm. 
because they're not having the conditions that they need for health development. So it's not an individual abnormality, it's a social abnormality. Mm -hmm. And how would we go about creating change on a social level? Well, the first thing you have to do is recognize the problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, before you can do something about something, you have to understand. So if you look at it historically, we have to look at what's missing. I mean, modern society has got all these great achievements, technological and scientific and so on. And, you know, that I'm not arguing with that. But in that process, we've also lost something very precious, which for the most part could be summarized as human connection. So if you look at how we evolved as creatures for couple of million years as the humanoid creatures were evolving. And then as human species arrived on the earth, and when our species, Homo sapiens arrived on the earth or arose from the earth, what do you want to say, about 150,000 years ago, for all of that time and until about 15,000 years ago, Human beings lived in small hunter-gatherer hunter groups, 60 to 80 people. Children were always around the parents. Children were playing outdoors with other kids of different ages. Everybody looked after the children. Uh, there was no separation of kids from the adults. Babies were not allowed to cry on their own. They were picked up and held right away as soon as they were in distress. They were carried everywhere by the parents. And the society lived communally. And nobody owned more than anybody else. And uh, there was no sense of wealth and the sense of individual possession. Mm -hmm. Now that's how we evolved. And so our nature adjusted to that kind of a system. So that when we talk about human nature, we often think, how human, behave, how human people behave reflects human nature. So if people are selfish, that has to be human nature. Well, no, it doesn't. It's just human nature in a certain context. So we have lungs because there's oxygen. If there's no oxygen, we'd have no lungs. Our lungs evolved as an expectation for oxygen. Well, human beings evolved as an expectation for loving and nurturing and, 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 and being held and interaction. That's our expectation. And our, our nervous system was designed for that. In a society that denies those connections that increasingly separates people with this epidemic of loneliness, even before COVID, with increasing inequality, with kids being separated from their parents most of the day, these are all unnatural conditions. And so it's a source of a lot of pathology. Right. Now, how do you create change? Well, you have to create, look for that change on the individual level, on the family level, on the communal level, and on the social level. And uh, on the personal level, it's understanding that how we were programmed and how we behave and how we feel is not necessarily normal. 
it's our adjustment to an abnormal situation and we don't have to be the way we are. On a communal level, it's how do we create more connection. On a family level, it's how do we restore the adult-child relationship to where it needs to be. On a social political level, how do we create a system that actually meets human needs? And these are broad questions. Uh, I don't have the answer on the political level except to say that this system that we have right now for all its achievements and, and all its wealth that it generates, the way it distributes wealth and the way that it um, idolizes wealth and the way that it uh, separates individuals, it doesn't serve human beings. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And um, when we look at healing um, on an individual level, healing happens when we de develop a connection to ourselves that was cut off in childhood. Yeah. Now, how can we connect to ourselves when we've lost that connection? Well, what does connecting to the self actually mean? Yeah, well, on a very practical level, it means uh, knowing what your gut feelings are and being able to act on them. I mean, <clears throat> out there in nature, how long does an animal survive if they don't pay attention to their gut feelings? Not long. And as we evolved as human beings out there in nature, we wouldn't have survived if we didn't know how to pay attention to our gut feelings. But in our society, in our culture, a lot of people get disconnected from their emotions and their gut feelings. And, 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 and um, that happens early in childhood. Mm -hmm. um, there's a very famous Canadian psychologist who advises parents that if a two-year-old kid is angry, let them sit by themselves until they come back to normal. Well, what's the message? The message is that it's not normal to be angry for a two-year-old. Well, what did that two-year-old will do in order to fit in with the family's expectations is to suppress their anger. And when they do, they lose connection with their gut feelings. Now, it's not that that sense of self ever goes away. It's not destroyed. It can't be destroyed. It's part of our nature. But we lose contact with it. We lose sight of it. We lose... Um, our capacity to be in touch with it. That's the task of healing. Healing actually means wholeness. Mm -hmm. And wholeness means to be connected to yourself. No, there's a lot of modalities for that, but that's the task. So it's not that, and, 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 and how do we know that we're disconnected? Because we suffer. We suffer physical illness, we suffer mental illness, we suffer alienation. Oh. Um, irritability, uh, problems in our relationships, all these signs, all these are signs of, of disconnect so that life keeps reminding us. L life keeps slapping us on the head, telling us that uh, you're disconnected. You know, you better do something about it. So what I'm saying to people is that when they have problems, they can look upon the problems in two ways. They can look at it as a nuisance to get rid of. How do I get, you know, I got a migraine addict. How do I get rid of it? Well, take an aspirin. All right, take an aspirin. I'm not against that. Nobody should sit there with a headache, but you might also ask yourself, what is the migraine headache telling me about my life? 
what am I not dealing with? Because it doesn't come along for no reason. Or if you're in a relationship um, and there's a problem in the relationship, you could just, okay, I'm getting out of here. Or you could say, I just want to get rid of the problem. Or you could say, well, what is this problem telling me about my approach to life? In other words, how you reconnect is you recognize that the problems that you're facing are life's attempts to get you to wake up. Hmm. So they're lessons is what you're saying. They're lessons for you to... They're potential lessons. Mm -hmm. They're lessons only if we learn from them. So the COVID crisis right now, it could be a lesson or it could be just be a miserable experience. Depending, depending on how we as a society or as individuals relate to it. And I've heard you say in other interviews, um, your pain and trauma is not who you are. Yeah. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, there's a tendency in people and in me, for example, to identify with my to identify with my pain, to um, to think that that suffering that I'm experiencing is a necessary part of me, and expresses who I am. And uh, <clears throat> or even when it comes to illness, people like will identify with their illness, and they say, "I am." Mm -hmm. a sufferer of rheumatoid arthritis, and that's who I am. That's not who you are. Your human being is having an experience. That experience is meaning. And you'll find out who you are if you explore the meaning. Um, the, 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 So don't identify with your suffering. Be curious about it. Or, or people say, I'm an addict. Well, nobody is an addict. That's not who they are. Who they are is a human being who is escaping into addiction in order to escape their suffering. That's who they are. But they're a human being who can learn to deal with that suffering in a different way. So to say, I'm an addict. Um, it describes something, but it's not an accurate statement. That's not who anybody is. Right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I sometimes see trauma as, as very valuable in the sense that we use our trauma to be of service to others. And in this regard, do you think we can see it as a gift? Well, I don't wish the gift of trauma on anybody. Mm. So it's not like you ever say to somebody, oh, you're so fortunate to have been abused, you know? Absolutely <laughs> not. Nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> but, but trauma can be a gift if we choose to learn from it. So that I'd have a lot of people who've been through serious illness or addictions or and they say, I'm so grateful for what I've learned. So again, it's not for somebody else to tell anybody that your trauma is a gift, mm -hmm. but individuals on their own can come to that realization once they 
grasp the learning that was um, granted by going through and dealing with their trauma. So in essence, trauma can be a gift and, and it's, it, it can be a gift to others because I know that my own writing and speaking and teaching has been completely informed, not just by the trauma that I experienced as an infant, but also what I've learned from it and what I continue to learn from it. So that in that sense, your trauma can be a gift to somebody else. And that's just how it works. So, you know, I don't wish cancer on anybody, but I've talked to a lot of people with cancer who said it was the greatest teacher of them all. Mm -hmm. Now, that might strike some people as odd. Well, how would, why would somebody say that? Well, they said it, they said it because what they learned about their cancer connected them with themselves again. So that's how trauma can be a gift. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not a gift I wish on anybody, but that's just how it works out in many cases. And um, you've developed this therapeutic process, uh, compassionate inquiry, yeah. which I have been um, blessed to be a part of at times. And um, hey, you play a major role in it. You're apparently, I've been <laughs> I haven't taken the actual course yet, but I will. Um, but, but our interaction in Toronto that was filmed, it it features um, in, in in one of the, some of the teachings. As a matter of fact, there's a new film coming up about my work called "The Wisdom of Trauma," and that scene is in it. Yeah, I just got an email the other day asking for permission. I was like, uh, of course. Like, oh, oh. Oh, you mean they had question, do I want to be in a documentary with Gabor? Of course. Yeah. Oh, you mean they hadn't asked you before? No, they, they asked um, for, the, for your compassion inquiry, yes, but for this new film. Well, they hadn't asked before? No, they just asked like a week ago. Oh, really? Okay. Because they're going through the editing process, I think. I see. I understand. Yeah. <clears throat> But when I was there, I actually, you know, traveled from Toronto to California to, to experience yeah. this compassion inquiry. And I can say two things. One is that I felt my true self mm. being there, mm. like completely in the present, completely mm. in the moment and just alive and happy. Mm. And the second thing is, I was trying to kind of grasp the experience into, you know, in my mind, not only in my heart, but in my mind as to what it meant for me and what it did for me. And I came up with this. For me, it felt like an exoneration from my mind's prison. Mm. It relieved the burden of caring blame or shame or whatever it is. So um, I want to thank you for that because that was an amazing experience. Well, that's so wonderful to hear. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> and can you speak for those that don't know Compassion Inquiry? Can you just give a, an explanation of how the process works? Yes. Yeah, so the principle is very simple, which is that anything that you think is wrong with you, it came along for a reason. And that reason was to help you survive. Now, I don't care whether it's blame, shame, addiction, whatever it was, 
It had an original purpose. And so therefore you don't reject any part of yourself and you don't condemn yourself or shame yourself or anything. You get curious about it. You conduct an inquiry. Why did this come along? What happened? So that's the inquiry part. Now, you know, that's just a simple ver statement of it, but it, it's, it's just, you just keep asking, okay, why, why? Mm -hmm. Not why, but why? Mm -hmm. And the compassion part is that you don't judge anything about yourself or anybody else. You just know that people do their best. Life does its best. Now, compassion means that you try to understand why things happen. And compassion means that you don't mistake somebody for their behavior. You don't mistake yourself for your behavior either. And when I say that you don't judge anybody, well, the fact is you will judge yourself and other people, but you're not the one doing the judging. The judging is an automatic mechanism of your mind. Mm -hmm. So you get curious even about that. So, so rather than judging yourself for being judgmental, you get curious, oh, what is this judgment really all about for me? So just everything is a subject for inquiry. Uh, there's certain methods and, and, and stepping stones that I teach in the Compassion Inquiry course, but th th that's the essence of it. Everything is an object of inquiry from a point of view of compassion, of trying to understand without judgment. That's really what it's about. Right. And, 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 the, and the ultimate purpose is that the, that the individual can express themselves in the present moment without being imprisoned, as you put it. Uh, by the past. Right. Okay. Thank you. Um, I remember uh, a while ago when you first started with Compassion Inquiry, I had said to you, um, you really need to, to teach this to people. Yeah. And you had said to me, I'm not sure if it's possible to teach it or yeah. if it's just something I can do just because of my skills and awareness. How do you feel about compassion inquiring now that you've, you've taught it to people? What is the, some of the feedback you're getting? Well, um, <clears throat> truly I didn't know I had anything to teach because I didn't learn this. I just, it, it evolved in the course of my work. And I didn't know it was based on particular gifts that I have or an actual modality that can be analyzed and taught. And many people came to me with the same question. I kept saying, leave me alone, I can't teach this. I don't, I'm not, I, don't, I don't even know what I'm doing, let alone how can I teach it to others? Turns out it can be taught. And th that didn't depend on me. Other people took my work. And they said, well, here's the principles of it. And mm -hmm. here's how it works. And so in this training now, over the last, we just started online two years ago, we've had over a thousand people in 71 countries. Wow. And it's not for everybody because it demands a lot of time and it also de demand, demands real dedication to self-awareness. So when people join the course, they think they're gonna learn this brilliant technique. Nuh-uh, they're gonna learn about themselves is what they're gonna do. And, and, and so I say to people, well, listen, if after four weeks you don't find this is for you, here's your money back, you know. But what we, the feedback we do get overwhelmingly, 
overwhelmingly from participants is that it changed their lives. People who've done PhDs in psychology tell me that they've learned more than they did in all the years of, you know, their PhD program. I get this all the time. So we get tremendous feedback um, from the vast, vast majority of people who actually complete the program. And uh, again, this is spread to 71 countries. I mean, I would never, I never would have imagined it. So um, now I'm also not saying that it's the only way to work. It's just, that's just the, the method that I've developed. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, there are other good modalities out there and, and we expose our students to other modalities just so that they're aware of them. You know, no, nobody should think that this is the way to go. You know, this is one way to go. Right. Um, I find that compassion inquiry for me was someone just reaching into my, my heart, yeah. pulling it out and just showing it to me. This is what's happening. Because of course I was clueless and the story I told myself yeah. was the furthest thing from the truth. And you were able to just reach it in, in seconds. I mean, it was what, five minutes. And I've told people you can be in th I've, what Gabor does, and I've seen it over and over and over. And what, what he does in, in three, four minutes, some people can't achieve in like years, 10 years of therapy. It's just unbelievable, this method. Well, I have to say that's because a lot of psychology is so misplaced and a lot of therapy is so misses the point. I mean, there's nothing magical about what I do. It's just going straight for the truth, which is very self-evident, really. Mm -hmm. It's only that a lot of psychology is up in the head and it's all about ideas and beliefs and so on. And really the truth is right here inside of ourselves. All we have to do is ask the right questions. That's right. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly what I felt as well. Um, yeah. Well, I would love to... Uh, thank you so much for your time. Mm. It's been wonderful speaking with you and truly an honor. And I am looking forward to the next Compassion Inquiry in person. Yeah. Um, hopefully that'll happen in shorter time than, than later, because it'd be wonderful to attend that again. It was such a gift. Well, maybe you don't need it. Have you considered that? Oh, it's, it's not really about needing it. It's a wanting. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. The experience is just so magical that just witnessing other people's healing process is just so, you know, it just puts life in me. It's just an amazing, amazing way. Well, listen, thank you so much. And it's a great thank pleasure you. to see you again. Thank you very much, Dr. Gabor Mate. Take, Take care. Thank you. You've reached the end of this episode with the Trauma Mental Health Report podcast. Thank you for joining us. Connect with us at trauma.blog.yorku.ca. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter to see our latest content. See you at the next episode.